Good morning. My name is Pastor Scott Sheffield, and I'm pastor of Adult Discipleship. And uh, hopefully you will get something from this message this morning and enjoy it, because it could be my last time. Uh, Just before our service started here, uh, I greeted three of our communion servers as the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, engaging the mouth before the brain, right? have to watch that one. If you want to turn to Psalm 42, that's where we will end up this morning, and that way you'll be able to be there instead of frantically searching for it uh, when the time comes. It will also be on the screen uh, if you would prefer just to look at it then in that way. Here we are at the beginning of 2015, hard to believe, isn't it? It's a time when many of us will reflect back on the past year, on our life, where we are, where we wish we were, and maybe make some decisions to change something. And we often call those resolutions. Remember last week, Pastor Mike shared with us a study that told about the top 10 uh, New Year's resolutions that Americans make. Uh, Do you remember the first one? Lose weight. Right. I heard somebody say that. How do you like what that scale says? And the second one, do you remember what the second one was? Just to get more organized. I remember when I was a kid, my grandpa had in his garage this sign that said, now that I've got it all together, I can't remember where I put it. Which could probably be in many of our garages, right? And the third one was to save more money. Hopefully not in mayonnaise jars, but uh, anyway, to save more money. Now, if I were to go out uh, after the end of this service into our lobby and I were to ask this question of people who attend church who are most likely Christ followers, the same question, they might answer some of those questions the same. They might have some of the same New Year's resolutions, but they would probably also come up with several that are different than that, maybe to have a better prayer life. Uh, to read the Bible more, maybe be more thorough in your study of the Bible. Some people will choose a Bible reading plan for the year. Or maybe to attend a church more regularly. And the reason why we would choose these things is not necessarily because we want to uh, pray longer, read the Bible more, or attend church more regularly, but it's because we, we would like the end result of that, which is Christlikeness or godliness. Because it is possible to do these things and not achieve Christ-likeness. Now, maybe you're wondering how that's possible, so let me take you to God's Word and show you what Jesus said. In uh, one of the parables that Jesus told, and a parable, uh, just think of like Aesop's fables, but Jesus telling the story that had a meaning at the end of it. He was telling the story to help us to understand a spiritual truth. And this parable happened to be about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, a Pharisee is the top level of religiosity in Israel. You did not get more religious than this. So he's using that as maybe the standard that we're trying to achieve. And a tax collector, if you remember a few sermons back, is uh, one listed level of sinner. You know, today we might list uh, the worst of the sinners as uh, maybe an axe murderer, 
uh, a serial rapist, a child abuser. And as you can see in this verse, they're listed as robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and tax collectors. Now you would think, why would they list somebody who's like an IRS agent as the worst of sinners? Because they were collecting the taxes for their enemies, the Romans. And not only did they collect the taxes that were due to the Roman government, but they would collect well above and beyond that and keep the extra for themselves. So not only were they working with the enemy, but they were greedy as well and taking from people that probably couldn't afford it. So Jesus tells this parable, this story of a Pharisee, the highest of the high, and the tax collector, the lowest of the low, who have gone to the temple to pray. And we don't know all the details because this is just a story that Jesus is telling. But I can picture this Pharisee coming into the temple and standing up right in the center so everybody can see him as he prays. And what does he say? God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, is that the way you would expect a religious person to start a prayer? Thank you that I'm not like other people? Sounds like he's got a real problem with humility, doesn't it? And then he goes on to to name who those other people are, robbers and evildoers and adulterers. And I can just picture this guy standing in the middle of the temple and pointing, and like that guy, the tax collector. And then he goes on to say, I fast twice a week, which has nothing to do with speed. It's all about uh, removing things that would take your focus off of God while you're praying like food. We might uh, take an electronics fast, uh, you know, not look at our computers or our phones for a couple of days while we're praying. So it, we can see this person who is supposed to be the top of the religious people in Israel, and we listen to his prayer and we think, this guy's not even Christ-like. He's not godly in any way. Another one, uh, when we look at Uh, Knowing the Bible, again, we're looking at the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees would memorize vast portions of Scripture. At that point, it was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And many of them memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy word perfect. And it wasn't just that. They memorized other parts of Scripture as well. So they were obviously reading God's Word often, meditating on it, memorizing it. And yet when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Isn't it just like Jesus to hold back what he really thinks, right? You are like whitewashed tombs. Now what does he mean by that? You remember when you were a kid and you read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Aunt Polly told Tom to go out and whitewash the picket fence? That's what this is like. It's a mixture of white paint and uh, water to kind of extend the life of it. And it was in order to make that picket fence, or in this case, these tombstones, look brilliantly white. So he says, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of uh, the dead and everything unclean. You think you look good, but you're really not. So Jesus says it's possible to know the Bible inside and out 
and yet not be godly. It's also possible to be in church every Sunday and not be godly. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, what does he mean by the day approaching? That's the second coming of Christ. So as we get closer and closer to the return of our Savior, we need to be doing these things even more. Yes, we need to be meeting together. We need to be together as a church family. That's important. But he says there's more to it than that. He says that you need to be uh, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds while you're at church with other believers. You need to be encouraging one another. So it's possible to be at church 52 Sundays a year and grumbling and complaining and discouraging other people and therefore not be godly. When I was in high school and college, our youth group would often go out on weekends to the desert to a place called Joshua Tree National Park. As you can see, it's right out in the middle of the desert. Uh, we would go out there for a weekend with our, uh, our tents and our camp stoves, and we would go dirt biking and rock climbing and rappelling. And uh, my friends loved to do this. Remember, I grew up in Southern California, so what we were used to was traffic jams and, you know, you couldn't see the, the stars at night. Uh, there was no place that you would be able to ride a dirt bike where you lived unless you went out to a place like this. And so that's why they loved this. I do not love the desert, okay? It's hot, it's dry, it's dusty, and anybody that tells you that 110 degrees is a dry heat, just go home and open your oven after it's heated up, right? And that blast of hot air that comes out, don't give me any of that dry heat stuff. It's just hot. What I would prefer is lush trees in a forest with a path that's overgrown or going down to the ocean with the the sound of the waves crashing and the cool water touching your skin. And I think that's one of the reasons why Cindy and I love going to Presque Isle so much. You know, you may not be in a forest, but you got lots of tall trees and you got the paths that are going through there with uh, that are covered over and, well, okay, you don't have crashing waves, but, you know, maybe about like that. But you do hear the, the sound of the water and... It, I guess, in a way, it kind of takes me back to my roots in Southern California. But getting back to the desert, really the only thing that I enjoyed about those weekends was my friends and the activities that we were involved in. I didn't enjoy the environment. If we hadn't taken water with us, we would have been dehydrated by the end of the weekend. And if we hadn't taken tents or canopies, we would have had sunstroke before the end of the first day. So while some of my friends really enjoyed those surroundings, I didn't really care for it that much. Matter of fact, when I was a little kid, like maybe six, seven years old, I would sometimes have these nightmares of being lost in the desert. And of course, if you're six or seven years old and you're having a nightmare about being lost in the desert, there's also a monster chasing you, right? And it's not enough that you're having a nightmare and you're lost in the desert 
and a monster is chasing you. But of course, as the monster is chasing you, as hard as you may try, you can only run in slow motion, right? You can never get away from this monster. Well, that's what's depicted here in Psalm 42. Not monsters and nightmares. Stay with me here. But a parched desert experience. The most famous verse from this psalm says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, we've probably read that a number of times. We've uh, heard other people preach on it or heard it, read it in a devotional book or something. Uh, perhaps you've even sung the, the praise chorus that goes along with this verse so many times that we fail to recognize what the authors are trying to show us. Picture this. You're sitting on the other edge of a stream, and you hear crashing through the, the forest, and there's a deer running for its life, probably a, a mountain lion or a wolf or something chasing after it. And somehow it gets away. And from where you're sitting unspotted on a rock across the stream, you can actually see the sides of this deer going in and out. It's, it's gasping for breath. And as it bends down to get a drink of water, you can hear its breath rasping over its dry throat. That's the word picture that the sons of Korah are using when they wrote this psalm, having us picture what it's like to be separated from God, maybe pursued by the enemy of our soul, and how we should desire God's word. That's what it's like to be in a spiritually dry valley. Have you ever had a time in your life when God felt distant from you? Perhaps reading the Bible felt very dry, unrelated to your life. It was the same old stories, and it was hard to concentrate on what you were reading, let alone get motivated to read it. Have you had a time in your life when prayer felt like you were having a conversation in your head with yourself? Have you had a time when a full day of obedience to God's word felt more like a fairy tale than a real possibility? That may be the way that you or I feel, but it's not the way that we want to feel. We want to feel a closeness with God, and we want reading his word to feel like it's a best-selling novel, and you just can't stop turning the pages or put it down, and the characters feel like they're just coming to life. We want prayer to feel like it's just a conversation with God sitting across the table from us, and we want not just days, but even weeks of obedience to God's word to be a reality in our lives. Listen to these verses from Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? 
Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? My soul is downcast within me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? There are times in our lives when we can feel very empty and nothing seems to interest us spiritually. We want to be excited about our walk with God, but we're not. We're not even interested. We feel like we're wandering in that spiritually dry valley. At the time of this writing of Psalm 42, the author was himself bone dry spiritually, and he had grown indifferent to the things that had once thrilled him. In the first few verses, he says, His soul pants for God like a thirsty deer pants for water. He's thirsty not for a religion. He's not thirsting for good works. He's thirsting for a relational God. In the later verses, he says that he used to lead other people to God, but now he doesn't experience God in that same way. He is wishing for the joy of his salvation to return to his life. You know, the Bible is very honest with us about what it's like to live our life, and and it's not sugar-coated. We see people who fail, and I want to share with you one example of many where somebody went through a spiritually dry valley, and that's the prophet Elijah. Now, remember, a prophet, his whole job is to call people back from the valley. Elijah was a prophet during the time of the divided kingdom, and he was calling back the people of Israel who had turned their backs on God for a generation And yet he goes through this himself. It's after he engages in a spiritual battle with the false prophets of the idol Baal. And with God's help, he wins him against all of these false prophets. And yet when he should have been riding on this spiritual high, we would think for weeks, if not months, right after that, Queen Jezebel comes and threatens his life. And he finds himself immediately in a spiritual valley. In 1 Kings 19, beginning at verse 10, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. That's true. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. That's true. They have torn down your altars. True. Killed your prophets. That's also true. And I alone am left. That's how he felt. But that's not true. In a later verse, not very far from that, God says to him, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal. Remember that the next time you feel yourself in a spiritual valley, you feel all alone. You're not alone. God has preserved always a remnant for himself. 
When you feel like you're the only Christian who has ever gone through one of these dry times, remember, you're not alone. Everybody has, and probably multiple times. The key to it is what we do when it comes. Now, let me share with you some of the the paths that will take you into this spiritually dry valley, valley. The first one would be spiritual exhaustion. That describes Elijah, doesn't it? He was spiritually exhausted because of the battle that he had been through. Another one is a worldly environment. Now, I'm not saying a sinful environment, but when we find ourselves caught up in our career or our family, our friends, maybe sports or whatever it is, and our focus is no longer on God, we can find ourselves drifting into that valley. Another one is, is opposition. You know, even the Apostle Paul went through this. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. He's been there for a number of months, and he is continually in the synagogue speaking boldly. He's arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And there are many people that are turning from what was the worship of the goddess Artemis and are becoming Christ followers. But everybody's not happy about that. And one of the men that's not is a man named Demetrius. And the reason that he's not happy about it is because he's a silversmith. And he is making these little trinkets, these little temples, these little reminders for people to buy as they worship a false goddess. And so the more people that turn away from that and turn to Christianity, the less business he has, the less money that he makes. And so he convinces all of the others who are in the same silversmithing craft that he is that they need to get rid of Paul. Now, they don't go and invite him to leave and go on to the next city. They incite a riot that involves eventually the whole city And if the the public officials had not come in to play here, Paul would have himself been murdered by this riot. So even the Apostle Paul has gone through this spiritual opposition. Another thing is cycles of life. Maybe you're in a period of time uh, where you're experiencing an empty nest. Or maybe you're the parent of a terrible two or a terrible teen. Uh, You can laugh at that part. Uh, Maybe you're just finding yourself uh, in the middle of a very difficult time in your career. Or maybe uh, you are on the kind of the other side of parenting and you're taking care of aging parents. All of these things can kind of suck your energy and divert your attention from God and you find yourself in a valley. Another thing is extended temptations. Now, that's different than disobedience because, remember, being tempted is not the same as giving in to temptation and disobeying. So if you find yourself uh, fighting temptation, then that may happen. But obviously, if you give in to temptation and you find yourself in a life of disobedience, you, on your own accord, have walked directly into this valley. Well, how do we get out of the valley? The first thing is to recognize that it's not going to be my own strength that leads me out. 
My hope must be in God. In Psalm 71, it says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. I am not the one that's going to lead myself out of the valley. It's going to be God, and I need to recognize that. Another thing that you need to do is recognize where you are and how you got there. Is it because of something that you've been doing? Is it maybe something that you haven't been doing? God's been asking you to do something and you're not doing it. Or perhaps God has led you to this valley in order for you to grow through that time, to grow in dependence on Him. Another thing that we can do is to do the right thing simply because it's the right thing, not because it feels right. Because be honest, you know when you're in one of these dry times in your life, you don't feel like praying. You don't feel like reading your Bible. You don't feel like going to church. But we know that it's right to pray, and we know that it's right to read our Bible, and we know that it's right to go to church. And so we do so because it's the right thing. Let me give you an example. I may not feel like driving 55 or 60 miles an hour on the highway when the weather conditions are good and there's nobody else on the road and everybody's passing me that is on the road and I don't see any policemen anywhere, but I do drive the speed limit because it's the right thing to do. And you know what? God rewards me for that. And God will reward you for doing the right thing because it's the right thing, even if you don't feel like it. Because I do believe that God uses both blessings and uh, discipline in order to encourage us to do the right thing. Well, perhaps you're looking for something specific. Okay, I don't feel like reading my Bible, but I know I should. How can I go about doing this? Well, the first thing you need to recognize is that God created each one of us different. We all have different uh, leanings. If you are somebody who is kind of practical, maybe a do-it-yourselfer, you may find yourself drawn to books of the Bible like James or Philippians that are very practical in their day-to-day advice in walking the Christian life. If you love to read about people, biographies, then maybe you might want to spend some time in the Gospels or in the book of Acts or even back in the Old Testament in Genesis. Fascinating stories of people. Maybe you like action. You like going to those action movies, right? The Marvel characters and all that. Well, there is tons of action in the Bible. Read Genesis, Joshua, Judges, any number of portions of the Bible will be filled with that. You know, when my boys were young, they used to love for me to read to them from the book of Judges. Uh, All that action and the sword fighting and the tent peg hammered through the temple of the guy's head. Uh, the the left-handed guy that stuck the sword in the fat king and the, the fat swallowed up the sword. They love that stuff. Maybe you're more of an intellectual. Read the book of Romans. The point is, 
there is something there to grab your interest and then draw you in further. But let me give you a couple of other practical pointers. First of all, ask God to make his word come alive to you. It's his word. He wrote it. He inspired it. He's also the king of the universe. You think he couldn't do that? Of course he can. Ask him to make his words come alive to you. Here's something real practical. Don't sit down in front of the TV and watch The Voice and expect to get anything out of your Bible reading. Find a place that doesn't have a lot of distractions. What about your prayer life? If you find your prayer life is lacking vitality, what are some things that you can do? Next slide, please. Be intentional in your time. Yes, it's good and it is proper to pray when you feel the Spirit leading you. And yes, it is good to pray before meals because we're thanking God for His provision. But we ought to be intentional in what we're doing as well. Think of times that you can set aside every week that you're going to spend time in prayer. Maybe it's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 7 till 7.15 in the morning. I'm going to spend time in prayer. And then find a place, again, that's free from distractions. Make it more than just uh, a gimme list. God, this is what I want. This is what you need to give me. Talk to him like he's a real person. Spend time worshiping him. Keep track of what you're praying for so that you know when there are times when God has answered prayer because that's encouraging to us, isn't it? When we can look back and say, look what God did. Maybe pray with somebody too. Ask your spouse or your best friend, hey, let's get together on Thursday evenings and pray together for a half an hour. Remember when you were in school and you had study buddies? And you were going to meet in the library at a certain time and you were going to study and you knew, okay, I do not feel like going and studying biology tonight. But I know if I don't go that my friend is going to call me up and say, where are you? So there's that encouragement, okay, I guess I'll go. And so the times when you don't feel like being there, they do. And the times when you don't feel like being there, they do. So you you find yourself doing it more often. If you're wandering in a valley, now is the time to come in and be refreshed. Remember, again, you are not the only one who has ever been through this. Lean on God and his people. This is not time for a solo act. This is not time to be the Christian Lone Ranger. Get with people. If you're not in a life group, maybe God's leading you to do that now. Getting together a couple of times a month with a dozen other people who will help you and encourage you in your spiritual walk. If that's something that you feel God is nudging you to do, write that on that registration card before the the, uh, plate is passed this morning. Put your name and your contact information and just write Life Group on there someplace. And help me out a little bit and put down which days you're available to meet, and I'll do my best to get you in a Life Group. Maybe it's finding a mentor does that mean that you're, you're looking for uh, somebody who is Mother Teresa or Billy Graham? It just means you're finding somebody who is a few steps ahead of you in the Christian walk who can encourage you. So if God's calling you to do that, pray about it first. Don't just go ask somebody. Pray about it. 
And if somebody comes and asks you to be their mentor, this is not time for you to say, oh, I'm not ready for that. Uh, I still have things I need to work on. Well, of course you do. All of us have things we need to work on. But instead of saying no, I want you to pray about it just like the other person did. And ask God if this is something that he wants you to do. Remember, you're just a step or two ahead of that person that asked you. You're not some kind of a spiritual giant. Now let me bring up something that I really, really need you to know. If you've tuned me out for the last 30 minutes, that's okay. Pay attention right now. Okay? Do I have your focus now? If I do these things... If I read my Bible more diligently, if I meditate on his word, memorize scripture, if I'm more intentional about my prayer life and spend more time doing it, if I come to church more often and encourage people while I'm here, will God love me more? You need to pay attention to this, okay? The answer is no. God will not love you more if you do these things. You'll live a more joyful life. You'll probably be earning rewards in heaven. But God will not love you more. You know how I'm confident about that? Because God already loves you as much as he possibly can. He is crazy about you. And you need to understand this. If you are a Christ follower, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when God the Father looks at Jesus, does he say, well, I could love you more? No. So when God looks at you and sees his son, He can't love you more than he already does. I know some of you struggle with that because I do. When I look at myself, I see a screw-up. I see somebody who doesn't have this obedience thing down. And you probably do too. But you and I need to realize that God cannot love you more than he already does. Now, here's a real question. If I do these things, if I meditate on God's word, if I encourage other people at church, if I have a more vibrant prayer life, will I love God more? Yeah. That should be our motivation. 